Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Lynn Henning. Lynn covers the Tigers for the Detroit News. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Lynn underscore Henning. Lynn, welcome back to the podcast today. Hi, Ross. Hope all is well with you and your audience. Thank you very much. We hope all is well with you, of course. But I wanted to ask you, it's been an exciting week in Detroit. Two former Tigers just made the Hall of Fame in Alan Trammell and Jack Morris. You covered both of those players. Tell me a little bit about what you remember from each of them. Uh, tremendous professional baseball players in both cases. Uh, Trammell, uh, I, I think you can make a case. He's one of the 12 best shortstops uh, of all time. It, it took a long period here for people to kind of catch up with his context uh, in baseball history. Uh, but that was finally validated last week. And, and really, he should have gone in before this. But uh, we can say that about any number of people, uh, as we always have these debates. Uh, and in fact, we can debate whether some that have gone in should have, too. I mean, that's the nature of Hall of Fame balloting. And I think in the case of, of Trammell, his numbers were not extraordinary in any particular category. But the overall balance on all sides of the ledger or why he ended up with uh, so many war points uh, that obviously made him all of fame worthy. And uh, for that matter, I, I, I was really pleased last week uh, that he was finally sanctioned here with a plaque. Morris, his case was more debatable, I believe, uh, even though he got more of a percentage of the writer's vote when he was on the ballot then. Uh, I think his uh, numbers are less compelling, but uh, there were a majority of writers who thought he was Hall of Fame category. He simply didn't hit 75%. And then last week, the review committee uh, decided that uh, he, in fact, belonged in Cooperstown. So uh, there was there certainly no powerful disagreement there at all. I, I was glad for Jack. Uh, frankly, he always was very bitter that I didn't uh, put him on my writer's ballot, but had it been for personal reasons, I, I would have absolutely had him there. I like Jack Morris immensely. Um, and I, I have covered him since the day he came to Detroit. But I think, uh, Ross, you have to make very disciplined votes. And uh, right or wrong, you have to follow a particular core principle on these matters. And if you've studied the situation thoroughly as it applies to each player, uh, sometimes you're going to come up with a a definite thumbs up, and sometimes you're going to have to say to yourself, no, it doesn't quite reach uh, the Cooperstown threshold for me. And that was the way it went with uh, Morris, but not by a lot. And uh, I certainly could uh, respect the case for him, and I was glad he went in last week. How do you know that Morris was upset that you never voted for him? Has he confronted you about that? Oh, well, (laughs) it wasn't subtle. Uh, I, I think he felt very betrayed uh, that I, I didn't vote for him. Uh, I think he took it very personally. And in fact, I'll disclose to I sent him a nice congratulatory uh, text last week, and I got back uh, one word, uh, thanks, and uh, the bitterness uh, was all but dripping from it. Uh, and I understand that. Um, Jack believes he's a Hall of Famer. A majority of voters believed he was a Hall of Famer, and last week the review committee said he was. So if you're not voting for him, he probably does wonder what's up here. But it wasn't anything being up. You have to make an awful lot of tough calls. 
in the years that you vote for the Hall of Fame. And if you play the game, well, I don't want him to be mad at me, and I can rationalize and say that he belongs, et cetera, then you're going to be making a lot of votes that simply aren't true to you. And uh, I, I can't uh, abide that. Um, I also make my ballot public. Now, I could have gotten past this whole mess with him by simply keeping it private, but I don't think that's responsible either. I believe that we in the BBWA granted uh, this privilege and responsibility, owe it to the fans and to the players and to all to make our ballots public. And uh, therefore, I've always uh, made my vote uh, disclosed. And uh, I think that's the way it should go for everyone. Wins Above Replacement does a good job showing everything that Trammell did well. And Trammell really is a guy that sort of did everything well, but didn't do anything great. And I think that's part of the reason why he lingered on the ballot for so long without getting any serious traction. What, when you were covering him, did you see on a regular basis that made you say he's a Hall of Fame player? Uh, Consistent baseball skills on, again, a broad level, regularly displayed over 162 games. Uh, Again, if you look at any particular area, the the hits are just under 2,400. He didn't quite have 200 home runs, but uh, he, he, he came close. He played marvelously consistent uh, defense without being uh, anybody that was going to be necessarily winning a lot of gold glove votes. Uh, Because in my mind, Ross, he was one of the most efficient shortstops we will have seen over the last 40 years. Uh, he, He was really terrific at getting to the ball, squaring up, and getting a throw dead on the first baseman. It wasn't one of those rifle shot throws, but it always was in one fluid motion, a ball into his glove, up, and the ball over into first base, and he covered more than ample ground without, again, being uh, Ozzie Smith. He really got to just about everything he should, and he did it really without any interruptions through the course of those 20 years, and that's really what stands out, too. There weren't really what you would call any serious off-seasons during those times. And that's two decades of uh, extraordinary excellence. And that will get you after 20 years uh, into the Hall of Fame. Uh, when you've played again without any real diminished skill in any category, but you've always represented a plus on both sides of the ball. And uh, I think that's really uh, Alan Trammell. There aren't a lot of shortstops, again, in the history of the game uh, that could hold up categorically, defensively and offensively, for as long as he did, as well as he did. And that uh, is ultimately what put him into Cooperstown. Yeah, and it's interesting, too. And it it shows, I think if Trammell had actually won the MVP award in 1987, he lost out to... George Bell that year, Bell had a ton of RBIs and Trammell lost out. I think if Trammell won that award, he might have got in by the writers. It's that kind of difference that could have swung him. I agree. Yeah, that's a shame, isn't it? I think you hit it. It is, and, and, I, and I do think you just summarized it perfectly. That You have to remember, 1987 was before, obviously, the internet, before we had MLB Network. Uh, we didn't have uh, all games televised uh, in any market, uh, uh, r- rather in the Detroit region, for sure. In the Midwest, you didn't, 
perhaps, well, I take that back. You did have the Cubs and so forth, some teams like that who were on all time. But by and large, Ross, there wasn't uh, stem to stern TV coverage back then. And that impacted uh, an, an awful lot of what people were seeing. Uh, on a national level, if you didn't make Sports Center uh, that uh, particular period of time, uh, you really uh, were not being terribly well noticed unless people were looking at the box scores, and even that didn't tell you the whole story. And and so I do think that that was why uh, George Bell uh, got that MVP award that year because he started so hot, and then his cool finish uh, really wasn't picked up. He had enough steam build up at that point where it just overshot the runway. And uh, certainly it overshadowed what uh, Alan Trammell was doing that year, which, again, from opening day through the tail end of the season when they won that division, uh, was not as, as closely paid attention to by national voters. And that, to me, is the difference. Otherwise, he would have won that thing uh, going away. There is no question, had today's analysis been available then, uh, Alan Trammell would have won that uh, MVP by uh, a good many votes over Bell. I want to ask you, of course, you can't really talk about Alan Trammell without talking about his longtime teammate, Lou Whitaker. Wins above replacement and many other advanced metrics also point to Whitaker as being deserving of enshrinement. He wasn't even on the ballot for consideration with the Veterans Committee. First, your reaction to that snub, not even being on the ballot, but I'm curious if you've talked to him since this to get his reaction on his buddy Trammell going in. I haven't talked with uh, Lou Whitaker. We, we have, and of course he's uh, delighted. But uh, that is an injustice that will be righted probably the next time the Modern Era Committee uh, assembles. Because, Ross, all you have to do is look at his wins above replacement. He's up there in the high 70s, uh, 244 home runs, I believe. Um, his last five years, his last five years, he was 800-plus OPS every single season. Now, this is ridiculous. Uh, and when you played second base with his authority, with his amazing arm, uh, when you hit the way he did consistently for 19 years, uh, it's no wonder that his uh, war is so high up there in um, the high 70s, again, which uh, is virtually automatic. Hall of Fame elevation, and it should be. Uh, I don't think enough people have been aware of that. That's simple. And how the uh, the committee last week did not notice that is beyond me. I think now, though, that the pressure is building nationally because the numbers are so well crunched and understood now that it will be exceedingly difficult to the point of being discriminatory if he's not part of that group. Uh, in three years, and if he doesn't, in fact, get his plaque, because if you're going to make a case for uh, any number of guys, including Alan Trammell, uh, statistically, you cannot leave Lou Whitaker out of that mix. You simply cannot do it. Yeah, and it's interesting, a guy that Whitaker compares favorably to is Roberto Alomar. I think he's right in the same company as Craig Biggio, too. That whole cluster of second basemen, I don't see how those guys get in, but one is, like, tossed aside. And Whitaker actually fell off the ballot his first year on it. It's one of the great voting injustices of all time. It is, and that begs the question, how did it happen? I have my own theories on that. Uh, first of all, it was a very crowded ballot that year, so his timing was poor. Uh, secondly, uh, I don't think uh, anybody for a moment thought he was going to fall beneath 5%. I, I don't think anyone thought it through. 
uh, they just assumed, uh, yeah, Lou Whitaker's worthy of some discussion here. He'll get his 5%. And uh, even if they, they gave it that much contemplation, I'd be surprised. But the next thing you know is everybody kind of got involved with other people. And uh, he got, uh, I think, 3.9 or something like that. And it was a bit stunning. It became more stunning when, again, uh, thanks to sabermetrics and the Internet and guys like Jay Jaffe and Keith Law and Dan Samborski and people like that, Whitaker's numbers were flashed up there in the sky and a lot of people were stunned. And what I can't figure out, Ross, is, again, why he was overlooked this time around. Uh, it invites other questions. Uh, was he uh, a high-profile guy who helped himself uh, by being conversational and, and uh, um, real, real cogent? Uh, and no, he was not. Um, uh, kind of an aloof guy, kind of, as they said, uh, they used to say in the, on the team, lose world, his teammates, because he was just, again, um, a, a bit out of the mainstream, but not a bad person at all, never for a moment. He just had a different style, but it probably wasn't uh, anything that was going to lend himself to having a, a whole lot of wild stories written about him. And that enabled, I think, uh, extraordinary skills, again, to be uh, somewhat uh, diminished uh, when people began reflecting on his career. But the numbers, again, are compelling and uh, speak to the injustice of him not being there, unless we want to start pulling a whole lot of other folks out of Cooperstown saying, you don't belong. Whitaker belongs. And uh, he will go in at some point because, uh, again, uh, to simply deny him uh, entry when you play so many other people with inferior numbers uh, with their plaque uh, in that wing uh, is, is really uh, ridiculous and exceptional. And uh, I don't think it's going to last all that long before uh, a bit of uh, justice is done there. Well, I certainly hope you're right about that. I want to ask you about the last time you came on the podcast was a few years ago. You came on at that point to talk about why you were giving up your Hall of Fame vote, and you did abstain from voting for a few years, but last year you returned to voting, and I'm curious what triggered that decision. The only uh, reason that I did come back is because I had room to get all of the people I considered to be Hall of Fame worthy on my ballot. Uh, the 10-man limit restricted from a couple of years, uh, from being able to place all the people that I believe to be uh, worthy on the ballot. And I said, I'm not going to participate in something where I have to begin leaving people out, um, parsing careers and saying, well, you're a little less Hall of Fame worthy than the other 10, so therefore I'm not going to vote for you. I thought that was a travesty and I wasn't going to participate in it. Had I been in that same situation the last two years, and I easily could have, I would not have voted either, but I voted for nine last year because I believed nine should go in, and I voted for eight this year. I, I, I sent in a very taut, what I think uh, to be disciplined, uh, even conservative, if you want to use that word with me, um, ballot. Uh, I had eight on this year. So the limit did not by itself uh, compel me to, to abstain, but there are a whole lot of other reasons that uh, I'm extremely unhappy with Cooperstown, and uh, I, I could have done what Jeff Passan did and, and simply said I'm not participating because of the odious politics that have entered into the picture. 
and they have. Um, and it gets down to a the ten man limit that they won't budge from, which is nonsense. Uh, it gets down to them restricting uh, now ballot uh, appearances to ten years versus the fifteen that we really needed to fully contemplate uh, a lot of players uh, with time. Uh, it gets down to the really um, authoritarian autocratic decision they made last year uh, to not allow the Baseball Writers Association to publicly disclose all ballots, which is what we voted to do one year ago and which was long overdue. Um, We voted to do that. It should have been our right to do that. And uh, Cooperstown um, said, no, we don't want that. And the reason they don't want it very purely is the reason that they want 10-year limits rather than 15 and 10-man ballots. They want to try to make it tougher for Bonds and Clemens to get in uh, to Cooperstown. Uh, that is political. That is nefarious. Uh, that is uh, pure uh, malevolence on my uh, uh, particular view. And um, I, I uh, came close to not voting again, but I decided that would defeat the purpose. Uh, next year, if I have more than 10, I will not vote. But uh, if I can get uh, 10 or fewer on there, uh, then I'm going to at least exercise my vote. That, that's, the, the, that's the line of which I've drawn. Well, last year you voted for nine. Those nine were Bagwell, Bonds, Clemens, Jeff Kent, Edgar Martinez, Mike Mussina, Tim Raines, Ivan Rodriguez, and Kurt Schilling. Three of those players got mm-hmm. inducted, and you had one additional space. So you said you voted for eight this year. Who was your ballot this year? My ballot this year was Bonds, Clemens, Edgar Martinez. Um, I had uh, Mussina, Killing. Tommy, Chipper Jones, and I'm missing one. I'm not sure who I'm missing right now. I had eight on there this year. Oh, the, the guy that I dropped this year, and I've never, I don't think I've done this baby but once over 30 years. I, I did drop a guy this year, and that was uh, Jeff Kent. Uh, and that's unusual, and, and I've got to explain it this way. Each year, I explore the numbers, and I engage in discussion with people, And I really try to make uh, the best possible vote I can. I came to the conclusion, based upon deeper dives into those secondary numbers, and probably with the help of Jay Jaffe's great book, uh, the Cooperstown Casebook, uh, that Kent was just a little beneath sea level. And had I voted for him this year, it would have been to satisfy continuity. And I don't believe that repeating something that you're really not uh, fully committed to is uh, any kind of virtue. Uh, I, I thought I needed to extract him, and, and I really did, because I, I thought the vote would be too hollow. Um, it's not that Jeff can't, again, you can't make a case for him. You certainly can. I respect those who do. But really, uh, analyzing uh, numbers more expansively, uh, I had to say that he just doesn't quite make it. And so I did that, again, anomaly for me. I, 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 I withdrew a, a vote this year, and I have no conscience crisis over that. I think it was a better ballot with those eight people on it. Now, I also didn't vote for Trevor Hoffman. I didn't vote for Larry Walker. Uh, I didn't vote for Fred McGriff. 
uh, I didn't vote for a couple of people who are probably right on the cusp. Um, How about Scott Rowland? Scott Rowland was the other one I was trying to think of. of Scott Rowland. Uh, he, it, it, yeah, he, no, no, he wasn't. And he is one, though, along with, with Larry Walker, that I'm going to study and discuss uh, very, very, very thoroughly over the next year uh, to make sure that uh, I'm not um, really missing something there. I, I have tremendous regard for Jay Jaffe's research. And Jay, of course, believes they both go. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to study that uh, a lot harder. I, I added Schilling a few years ago uh, after initially not considering him to be Hall of Fame worthy. Um, I added uh, Vlad Guerrero this year, and I didn't vote for him last year. Last year was right on the edge for me. And I believed that he was right there with Walker, and neither one I was completely sold on. Uh, the more I got into the Guerrero study this year, I, I decided he belonged. And I, I'm going to, again, continue to look at this thing from all angles, all sides, upside down, over the top, and uh, see how I feel next December about uh, Walker and uh, about Roland, because um, there are an awful lot of strong cases being made there. And uh, I like to keep an open mind, the most possible open mind on this stuff, Ross. And uh, I'll be open to persuasion if I find that those cases uh, really are persuasive. But Trevor Hoffman, no, I'm not changing my mind there because I'm really not on the fence. Uh, but uh, in those two instances, I will. And, of course, we're going to have a couple of more new ones next year, too, to, to ponder as well, Mariano Rivera and some others. That's right. Next year, you've got Mariano Rivera and Roy Halladay, who will in all likelihood take the spaces that Chipper Jones and Jim Tomey are going to occupy for a lot of people. I expect Jones and Tomey to get in right away this year, and I expect Rivera and Halladay to get in next year as well. But next year is also adding Todd Helton, Lance Berkman, and Andy Pettit. So there are some, you know, the crowded field is going to continue here next year as well. Yeah. At first blush, uh, I expect Halladay and, um, and, and I expect, of course, uh, Rivera's going to be on there, but uh, that's what I like, though, Ross, about, again, devoting a full year of study to this, and I think it's necessary. I, I certainly enjoy the endeavor um, because I think Hall of Fame voters must constantly challenge, research, weigh, and do the best they can to make the most intelligent ballot possible. So the year eight this year, it seems like it is uh, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Vlad Guerrero, Edgar Martinez, Kurt Schilling, Mike Mussina, Chipper Jones, and Jim Tomey. That is the eight. Yeah, I'm not sure who I left out on our first mention there, but those are the eight. Very good. I do want to move off the Hall of Fame for a little bit and ask you about the Tigers real quick. In addition to Morris and uh, Trammell getting into the Hall of Fame this week, the Tigers also traded Ian Kinsler to the Angels. This is the uh, third big trade that... Al Avila has had to make during this rebuilding process. He, of course, traded Verlander to the Astros. He went on to help them win the World Series. He traded J.D. Martinez to the Diamondbacks, and he ended up leading the league in slugging percentage. And now he's traded Ian Kinsler here. The return on all of these guys seems to be a little light. I'm curious what you think. I was actually surprised how much he got back on the Verlander deal because the Astros took uh, $40 million of the $56 million owed. And... 
in this day and age, people just don't give prospects when they're taking down a lot of money or vice versa. But uh, in that instance, uh, it was what the Astros needed to do. And the Tigers held out and wisely uh, because I think they got three real good prospects there. Uh, I, I think the return on J.D., given surprisingly that there was no market for him outside of the Diamondback, uh, was about as good as they could have gotten. They got three players, including uh, a new third baseman, uh, Candelario, that I think is going to be fairly decent. And they, they've got some potential help at second base and a utility infielder to go along with him. Uh, so given, again, Ross, that the market was just dead. And all the subsequent deals proved that, too. There just was no real market this past year for expensive people or for a lot of hitters or even pitchers that I think he maxed out on those. Remember, too, he traded Justin Upton. And they were going to lose Justin Upton to the opt-out on his contract. And he got back a couple of people, one of whom might be a way, way back in kind of a a starter reliever. But um, those deals were made. And then last week on Kinsler, he was in position, Al Avila was, to make a very good trade on Ian Kinsler, except that Kinsler had three of the four teams competing for him blocked on his no trade list. Well, that wiped out any leverage uh, that the Tigers had. And so they took... um, a couple of prospects, one of whom is an 18-year-old right-hander with some upside. But uh, that was about as good as they were going to do. Now, why didn't they hang on to him? I, I don't think there would have been any benefit there. Uh, and it had nothing to do with the $11 million he's, he's owed next year. That isn't that big of a, a, a price tag for a guy like Kinsler who can do what Kinsler can. But you try to get something from it. And, um, again, with that right-handed pitcher, maybe that fourth outfielder they got, maybe they do get. Uh, some uh, representative value on that deal. But it wasn't going to do Kinsler any good either to sit in Detroit during a rebuilding year and lose 100 games. That That's a waste, frankly, of his ability. He's better off helping a team that is in position to win. The Angels now are. And so it was good for him to almost a humanitarian gesture to get him to a contender. And in the process, uh, get the Tigers a, a, a couple of chips and uh, some payroll relief that, that helps them, but uh, by itself is not the reason that that deal was made. $11 million just isn't that big. They're way beneath the luxury tax now, so there wasn't any uh, serious concern there. Miguel Cabrera is coming off his worst year as a professional hitter. He has been an elite hitter for the past decade, but really struggled last year. He was hurt, and he seemed to struggle even when he was playing and he was healthy. Do you expect a rebound from him, or at least a rebound better than he was last year, or is this just the start of a lengthy decline here? I think uh, at his age, 34, he should be fine. And that is all a matter of getting his back healthy. They believed to a man medically that an off-season of rehabilitation would accomplish that with Cabrera's back and get his leverage back into his lower legs, uh, provide that power that was noticeably absent last year, and uh, get him back uh, swinging through the ball. At at his age, there's no real reason why that shouldn't happen. They didn't determine this thing to be anything that required surgery. And uh, therefore, I I think, think here, Ross, and I'm just reflecting back as we talk here that I I missed one of those trades earlier. We can go back to that uh, later. Uh, 
but I think um, that what they've got here uh, with, with Cabrera is something that can be overcome. I would expect him to return to a reasonable level of performance and command next year, which for him is going to be pretty good. It's going to be a, a 850 to 950 uh, OPS season. Again, at his age and given his unique skills, there is no reason why he shouldn't be back to that kind of relative uh, altitude. So I, I think he's probably fine. Uh, they can't really do anything uh, except to uh, uh, continue to uh, digest that long contract that has almost $200 million left on it. And that was Mike Illich's choice to, to make him that kind of a monument to baseball in Detroit. So no real second guesses there, but at some point they'll probably be uh, consuming quite a few of those dollars. But I don't think that point is even close to being reached. But, you know, back back to our trades, one, one thing we forgot about is they also traded Justin Wilson and, and Alex Avila uh, to the Cubs and got uh, some very good prospects out of that deal, including, I should have said then, the new third baseman, Kane Delario, as well as a, an exceptional young shortstop, uh, Paredes. So uh, given, again, to return to the trade subject for a moment here, Ross, I, I think uh, they did a lot better than people probably realize. In, in, a, in a couple of years, when these guys start hitting uh, the big leagues, and the, and the three they got from the Astros, the catchers, uh, Rogers, um, they got Des Cameron, a center fielder, and they got uh, a terrific young right-hander, um, Perez. Uh, I, I think on balance, I think uh, Avila did an excellent job with those deals. Again, uh, keeping in mind that this market was not conducive to making big and extraordinary deals. Now, I do expect if we can continue on this thought for a moment, that next July they will move Michael Fulmer for a boatload. He should be healthy. He's going to be one of the most sought-after pitchers, uh, certainly on the market, next midseason. I think they can make roughly the kind of deal for him that the White Sox made for either Sale or for Quintana. Uh, It's going to be um, a, a high retail return, and, and that's what it should be because Michael Fulmer is, is a potential Cy Young pitcher, and uh, the Tigers will need to spin him, Ross, uh, because again, this rebuild is going to take an awful lot of players, and uh, that's how you do it. You you you, you net uh, as as widely as you can, as many bodies as you can, and then you let that shake out and. Um, ideally provide for you the nucleus and core of a strong lineup and staff. But I think that's what you'll see happen. I suspect they will trade also Nick Castellanos at midseason. He'll have a year and a half before free agency. He should hit very well in the first half. And uh, it wouldn't shock me either if they traded uh, Shane Green, their closer to be, uh, as well as uh, even uh, James McCann, the catcher. All of those guys will be in play, and I think it's going to make for an interesting uh, July in Detroit, to say the least. Well, and the Astros and the Cubs are two teams that were bad for a while. They went through an intentional rebuild, and then they are the last two World Series winners. So that will soften the blow a little bit for Tigers fans. But are Tigers fans really ready for how bad this team is going to be over the next three years before they're in a position to get good again? They got a little spoiled because uh, the heyday, even though it didn't uh, win them a World Series, lasted uh, nearly a decade. And so they've wanted this seamless transition from that club 
into the new club. But this is where their profligate spending got them uh, earlier into a very bad situation, which was foreseen. Not only did they have payroll that was way beyond what this market should and could sustain, worse, it robbed them of so many draft picks because of all of the free agents that they had invested in that cost them first rounders. They lost five early draft picks uh, from 12 through 16. And you're not going to uh, do that and, and have a farm system that's going to be terribly exciting. On top of that, to us, they traded uh, whatever good prospects they had uh, in so many of those deals as well, including uh, the shortstop, uh, Willie Adamas, who's going to be quite a star in Tampa. So you can't have it both ways. I, I think if people come to realize that, they'll understand that, look, a 100 loss season is nothing that basically the Astros didn't uh, accommodate for a couple of years. The Cubs went through under Epstein some gruesome years before they finally got good. It's the only path forward, which is why those who say, well, they need to hang on to Fulmer and have somebody to build around. No, you don't, because trotting him out there every five days for a bad and rebuilding team isn't going to get you anywhere but halfway through the rebuild. Uh, you're simply going to have him competing on a lot of bad to perhaps lukewarm teams. And that does, again, nobody any good. Better to spin him for the three or four prospects and enable you then uh, to have a, a, a real thorough A to Z rebuild. Uh, and that's what they need in Detroit. You've been listening to Lynn Henning. Lynn covers the Tigers for the Detroit News. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Lynn underscore Henning. Lynn, thanks so much for returning to the podcast. Happy holidays to you and your family. And you too, Ross.